Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history this week on the agenda. Going to be having a chat about the Hundred Years' War, which was a, a long-standing conflict. Well, a very long-standing conflict, I think it's fair to say, between England and France. And of course, as I'm sure you can guess from the name of the war, it lasted for a hundred and sixteen years. Yeah, bit of a bit of a ten to five on a Friday decision by, by historians there, naming it the Hundred Years' War when it lasts one hundred sixteen years. But that's how it goes. Anyway, we have so much to talk about uh, with uh, with this topic, and I don't want this episode to also go for one hundred sixteen years. Um, so we're going to whiz through the introduction here. Here are some of the basics, uh, and then we'll get stuck in. Since basically the time of William the Conqueror, uh, when he overtook England in 1066, uh, English kings had held French titles as vassals of the French crown, because, of course, William was the Duke of Normandy when he conquered England. Um, So the English kings uh, were monarchs in their own right while also being French vassals. And when the French King Charles IV died without any sons or any brothers, uh, it turned out that his heir was none other than Edward III, the King of England. Now, the French didn't want an English king. Uh, can't blame him. Uh, and so they found a different heir, Philip VI, but Edward III decided to press his claim, after all, on the, on the French throne. And what followed was over a century of wars and conflict as France and England fought over these claims to the French throne Five generations of kings fought three separate wars that today we lump together and call the Hundred Years' War. For both sides, there were ups and downs, there were smiles and frowns, there were laughs, there were tears. Um, but what also changed, you know, apart from you know the, the waxing and waning fortunes of these two sides, was warfare itself. Medieval warfare changed forever as these two nations uh, fought for supremacy. Uh, the, the Hundred Years' War is famous, famous for all sorts of different things. Battles, uh, where the English longbow was was dominant at Cressy and Agincourt. It's famous for the tale of, of Joan of Arc. Uh, it's famous for seeing the rise of gunpowder artillery in its closing stages. And its legacy is felt very much even through to the, to the current day. Uh, this war shaped the modern nations of France and England and then by extension the UK. So much to get across, so much to talk about with this, three separate phases to a conflict that spanned over a century, fortunes, as I say, waxing and waning for both sides, bloody battles, protracted sieges, internal strife and conflict, and of course, a whole lot of blood and guts. There is something for everyone when it comes to the Hundred Years' War. So let's get into it. Let's get stuck in Hundred Years' War. Off we go. Let's get to it. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to the year 1337, the year that the war began. Very easy year to remember for any listeners who happen to be of a nerdier disposition. Um, but but look, actually, while this was the year that the war started, 1337, we should go back a little bit further here to talk in more depth about why it began, not just when. Because the causes of the Hundred Years' War are complex and they are numerous, uh, but I can try to get across the background kind of quickly here. And again, it begins with William the Conqueror. When William the Conqueror invaded England from Normandy as the Duke of Normandy, he set up a line of English kings that, as I mentioned, had significant territorial possessions in France but these were held as vassals of the French throne. Now, this chopped and changed a bit as the centuries passed, but ultimately, English monarchs 
held on to these French titles over the years, gained more, lost some, whatever else. And in the 13th century, by the time we get to the 13th century, England controlled, or the English controlled, quite a decent chunk of what is today's France. We've talked about the the massive English-controlled Angevin Empire before on the show. You can go back almost 100 episodes to 100, episode 134, Eleanor of Aquitaine, get across it. But the long and the short of it is this, right? England had a considerable stake in traditionally French lands, thanks to William and Eleanor and, and you know, who knows who else. And it won't surprise you to learn that, broadly speaking, the French didn't like this all that much. The English and the French crowns were in constant dispute over the feudal obligations of English-controlled French lands. They'd gone to war over England's position in France more than a few times. And look, it's all a bit complicated because I shouldn't technically be saying England. I should be saying the English and the, the French titles of these English kings were still subordinate to the French crown, not the English crown. They were held separately. They were governed by different feudal laws. They made their holders vassals of the French throne while also still being monarchs in the right. It's it's just, it's all a bit much really. But the bottom line is this. English rulers also ruled over, in addition to the Kingdom of England, and separately to these English titles, they ruled over much of France. But then... In 1214, when the Angevin Empire collapsed and England lost most of its territory in France, uh, it only managed to retain control over a relatively small, I mean, by today's terms, quite a large part, but a relatively small part of France compared to what the English holdings had looked like previously, um, down in Gascony, for instance, in, in, in the southwest corner of France. So even with the collapse of the Angevin Empire, there were still English interests in France. And as we move into the 14th century, uh, when this succession crisis that I mentioned in the introduction emerged in France, uh, this is where the conflict really comes to a head. The tension that has been brewing between these two nations for, for centuries really comes to a head. In 1328, King Charles IV of France, he died without a direct heir. No sons, no brothers. And it was this succession crisis more than anything else that really crystallised the situation between England and France and, and catalysed the onset of the, the Hundred Years' War um, because, you know, look, the reason I've been talking about the background to it, the English holdings, all the rest of it, is to give you some context and, and, and help you to understand that this war didn't spring up out of nowhere. This was not something that just sort of happened overnight, the blink of an eye. This this was the, the culmination of centuries of political tension between France and England. England had been eyeing off French land for a very, very long time before this particular war between the two nations. And, and look, you know, that's not out of character for the English. They do love to conquer foreign land and I'm not trying to make excuses for them, but who can blame them? If I were English, I'd also want to conquer somewhere else, any anywhere else, just so I could live somewhere that, you know, isn't England. Anyway, when Charles IV died without an heir, the closest relative of the dead king turned out to be none other than the King of England himself, Edward III. He was the current King of England, the grandson of a previous French king, Philip IV. Um, Philip's daughter, Isabella, had married Edward II of England, Edward's, uh, Edward III's father. But as you can imagine, even though he is the next direct heir to the French throne, the French weren't so keen on having an English king, as it was only a century or so ago that they'd ripped apart the Angevin Empire. They really didn't want to repeat that uh, that whole debacle. So they look around, they find someone else. And they use an ancient Frankish civil law code known as Salic Law. It is already 800 years old by now. It's very, 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 very well established. And using Salic Law and its uh, male-only succession rules, they instead crowned a different bloke, a bloke named Philip, Philip VI, 
as he was the nearest relative to the dead Charles IV that followed an all-male line, as Salic law demanded. Philip VI was the grandson of Philip III, um, who was also Edward III's great-grandfather. It's, look, it's all as complicated as anything, and it doesn't really matter, to be honest. The bottom line is this. In 1328, Philip VI was crowned as the King of France, not Edward III, despite Edward III having a very strong claim through his mother's side, and despite Philip being further away uh, in terms of the family tree from the dead Charles IV. Now, initially, uh, it actually seemed like Edward was just going to let this happen. Despite his very strong claim to the French throne, it looked like he was just going to accept the situation. He's only 15. He's only been king for a year. Um, and so he decides not to press his claim. He decides not to contest Philip the, uh, the Sixth rule. And so everything goes along quite smoothly, uh, relatively speaking, between France and England for another nine years. But then, and this is what brings us to the year 1337, in that year, Philip the Sixth decided to confiscate Gascony which is a prime English holding within France. He decides to confiscate that from, from Edward III, claiming that Edward wasn't fulfilling his responsibilities as a vassal of the French crown, which, technically speaking, Edward was. He was a vassal uh, as he held these French titles. And uh, th this, this failure to, uh, in, in Philip's mind at least, from to meet his obligations, gave uh, Philip a, a revocation reason, grounds to, to revoke this title, which he then did. And this also coincided with increased French raids on the English coastline. So I don't need to tell you that from 1337 onwards, tension between the two realms began to rise significantly. And as it was the year 1337 that saw the revocation of Gascony, that tends to be when the war is said to have begun. Although it wasn't until 1340, three years later, that Edward III finally stood up and made a decisive move against the French. Because in 1340, Edward III declared himself the King of France. He formally pressed his claim to the throne, and to go with this announcement, he unveiled a new coat of arms, which quartered the English lines, I'm sure you're familiar with these, with the French fleur-de-lis. The, the, it's no longer really in use in, in French heraldry, but it is the ancient symbol of the, of, of the French crown. Now, what's really interesting about this claim that Edward III pressed is that, and, and I mean, for that matter, the heraldic changes that came with it, this claim remained in place in England and then in Britain until, if you'll believe it, 1801. Until 1801, English and British monarchs also styled themselves as the king or queen of France, as well as being the king or queen of England or Great Britain or whatever, right? Just, and this is also despite not holding an inch of French territory after their loss of Calais in 1558. It is wild to think that for, what, 450 years, the monarchs of, of England and later on Britain still claim to be the monarchs of France as well, despite as I say, not holding a, an inch of French territory. Anyway, back in 1340, Edward has finally made his move. He's claimed the throne of France and the war got underway properly. This is the first period of the war and it is known very appropriately as the Edwardian War. Now, Edward acted quite quickly. Once, he'd, uh, he'd, once he uh, hit the ground, he hit the ground running. He launched an English fleet to go after a French invasion fleet that was uh, that was gathering at Slois, which is a town in the modern-day Netherlands. And uh, look, as they so often do on the water, the English carried the day. They cleverly manoeuvred their fleet to take advantage of both the wind and the position of the sun. 
and attacked a disorganised and unprepared French fleet who had the sun in their eyes and the wind against them. And as a result, the Battle of Slois was a devastating defeat for the French and not a good start to the war. Uh, they lost between 16,000 and 20,000 men. Absolutely devastating. Um, and the English captured over 160 of their 213 ships and destroyed 30 more for good measure. And because of this battle, the Battle of Slois, the French never really managed to get a foothold in the English Channel from that point onwards. The, the, it, it put the English in a great position to launch constant invasions and incursions into French territory across, across this body of water. Now, of course, after this uh, sort of opening uh, battle, there was further conflict that followed. Both the English and the French continued to fight over claims to their respective lands. But all this early fighting was something of a prelude, really, because it wasn't until 1346 that Edward really stepped up his attacks on the French by, by mustering an enormous invasion force. Uh, after gathering this army, he sailed across with it to Normandy, landed there, captured the city of Caen, and then marched along the coast towards modern-day Belgium, raiding and pillaging and burning and, and looting and leaving just a, a huge trail of destruction in his wake as, as he and this massive army ravaged the, the French countryside. Now, obviously, the French King Philip, he was forced to respond, and respond he did. He gathered a, an even bigger army of his own. Uh, and began to chase Edward across France. He tried to chase Edward down in order to force a pitched battle between the two armies. And this battle eventually came about, and it was, as you might know, the Battle of Cressy. We've already talked a little bit about this battle in episode 88, the English longbow, get across it. But here is the quick version. The English raiding across the French countryside, the French army, which, as I say, greatly outnumbered them, finally caught up with them and forced this pitched battle, which took place on the side of a hill. And you might remember from the episode about uh, the English Longbow how the Battle of Cressy really did upset the apple cart when it came to medieval warfare. Because prior to this battle, heavily armoured mounted knights, heavy cavalry in other words, were generally unstoppable. They weren't invincible. Certainly there were instances of heavy cavalry being you know, taken down a notch or two. But broadly speaking, they were the final say in medieval warfare. But that all changed at the Battle of Cressy thanks to the English longbow. It proved to be more than a match for the heavy French cavalry. Uh, in, in addition to some pretty serious mismanagement on the French side, it has to be said as well. Anyway, the English... They positioned their, uh, their, their archers atop this hill on either side of the, uh, of the battlefield and uh, put uh, sharpened spikes in front of them in, in order to, uh, to provide some defence and protection from, from a French uh, heavy cavalry charge. And as the, the French cavalry made charge after charge after charge up this hill, which grew increasingly muddy and difficult to, to navigate as time went on, the English longbows and their bodkin arrows made mincemeat of the French knights. They couldn't gain even an inch of ground against the might of these weapons, and the English carried the day. They scored a huge victory at Cressy and established a very strong foothold in France as a result. Remember how I mentioned before um, Calais, uh, the fact that the English held on to Calais all the way through to 1558? Well, it was directly after the Battle of Cressy that the English took Calais and uh, with it had a place to maintain a very strong military presence on the continent. Edward marched north to Calais straight after the Battle of Cressy. He besieged it and ultimately captured it without all that much resistance in the year 1347. And Philip, after 
having his forces absolutely eviscerated at Crecy. It was a, such a devastating loss for the French. He really wasn't in a position to do anything about this. And, I mean, as a result, it's fair to say that the opening stages of the Hundred Years' War went very, very well for the English. Victories both on land and sea put Edward in a very good position. And it only got, well... It only got either better or it only got worse from there, depending on whose side you're on. Because uh, in 1348, the Black Death arrived in Paris and ravaged the French even further, as did the son of Edward III, also called Edward, Edward the Black Prince, as he was known. Um, The Black Prince rode through farmlands and, and cities all the way throughout France. He raided and burnt and looted and pillaged. He pushed the French to breaking point. And when King Philip VI died in 1350, I mean, look, his son and successor, John II, ascended to the throne, but he was in such a terrible position, he had to consider a peace agreement. But this fell through. He couldn't seal the deal and get the English to stop attacking, and so the English and the French met in yet another huge battle, the Battle of Poitiers in 1356. 6,000 English troops held a defensive position against 15,000 French troops. The English lost, now their losses were in the hundreds, while the French lost between 6,000 and 8,000 men. And worse still, if you'll believe it, John II, the new French king, was captured. He was taken prisoner, and this effectively and immediately ended any hope the French had of eventual victory in this war. A truce was struck after the Battle of Poitiers. The English took John II back to London as a prisoner, and the two sides, they began to negotiate an end to the war. France is in absolute shambles. The regent, uh, who is John's son, Charles, who will be an important character later on, so remember him, uh, the regent faced mutinous nobles, peasant uprising, brigands and bandits everywhere, general just chaos all throughout France. Uh, as the country fell into ruin. And, you know, look, to Charles's credit, he did his best to manage the situation. But then, as the negotiation stalled and eventually fell through, Edward III invaded again to capitalise on the French position. So an absolute disaster, you would think. How is Charles going to deal with this one? His dad's locked up. He can't find it. He can't come to some lasting agreement while negotiating with the English. And they're back again and out for blood. Well, how did he survive it? As it turns out, through pure dumb luck. Because in 1360, as the English were marching through the French countryside, once again, they were landing through land, they were marching through land south of Paris, a freak hailstorm hit them and somehow killed a thousand troops. A hailstorm. I mean, look, I know car insurance companies won't cover hailstorms because they're absolutely deadly for your windscreens, but killing a thousand soldiers... These hailstones must have been like bloody bowling balls, mate. These losses were larger than any that the English had yet suffered in any of the battles that they'd fought so far. The English lost more men to hail than they did fighting battles against the French. Even so, this was good enough to make Edward III reconsider his position. He actually thought it was a sign from his god against any further warmongering. So he returned to the negotiation table determined to seek a peace agreement. And as a result, the Treaty of Bretigny was struck. This ceded huge amounts of French lands to the English, including the Duchy of Aquitaine. And it set John II's ransom at 3 million écus, or French gold coins. And in exchange, 
in exchange for the massive French territory and the safe return of, of John II for three million gold coins, Edward III agreed to renounce his claim to the Kingdom of France. So, the Edwardian War was, for the English, a near total success. While they did fall short of the of claiming the French throne, England massively increased its territorial holdings and uh, also stood to make just a boatload of money off the fact that they'd captured King John. I mean, can't win them all. There was the Hailstone incident. But apart from that, the, the, the Edwardian War, hands down, a victory for the English. However... The Treaty of Brittany, while it did bring about an end to this particular war, the Edwardian War, I mean, you and I both know there is plenty more war to be fought, it did not secure lasting peace. Not at all, in fact. After being humiliated with capture and defeat and after being forced to hand off around a quarter of his kingdom to the English, John II then died in captivity before his ransom could be paid. Uh, in 1364, and this meant that his son, Charles, was crowned as King Charles V of France, and under Charles V, before long, the French and the English were punching on once again. In 1369, after nine years of relative peace, the next stage of the Hundred Years' War began, the Caroline War, named after Charles, just as the Edwardian War had been named after Edward. When the Black Prince, Edward, the the son of Edward III, when the Black Prince raised taxes in Aquitaine, Charles V summoned him to Paris, claiming that he still had suzerainty over Aquitaine. The Black Prince refused, saying that the Treaty of Brittany said something different. And so Charles V, who wanted to undo the territorial losses that France had suffered under his old man, Charles used this as an excuse to reignite the conflict with the English. And let me tell you, things were quite different to how they had been nine years ago when the French had had their, their pants pulled down at the end of the Edwardian War. They hadn't been sitting on their hands. They had, the French had rebuilt their army and their navy. Their navy was now superior to the English. And on top of this, the English aren't in that good a shape at all, especially when it comes to their commanders and their leaders. Edward III is getting old and the, his, his heir, the Black Prince, is in very poor health indeed. So the French were in a good position to renew the fight with the English, and that's just what they did. Charles V, he avoided pitched battles with the English this time around, given how badly Cressy and Poitiers had gone. Um, and this proved to be quite a wise move from him as well. The French instead used their network of castles as bases of operations to send out raiding parties to harry the English in their newly captured land, raiding their lands and towns and, and, and what have you. Um, and in addition to this, the French Navy once again began raiding the English coastline, uh, just like they used to before the, the Battle of Slois. Now, the English responded to this French aggression by deploying 9,000 men from Calais to march south and fight the French. But again, the French just refused to meet them in, in a pitched battle. Instead, the raids and harassment continued. And in the, as, as the English marched south, they slowly but steadily began to lose the war of attrition. The French would do things like attack the English while they were, while they were crossing rivers, disrupt their baggage trains, trap them in disadvantageous positions, and generally just create as many problems as possible for them, again, without forcing a pitched battle. And it worked, because by the time the English contingent marched all the way through France to friendly territory down in the south in Gascony, they had lost a ton of men, a ton of horses, a ton of equipment, and they had nothing to show for it. 
And it only got worse for the English. The Black Prince's health got worse and worse, and he ended up dying in 1376. And then the next year, his dad followed suit. In 1377, Edward III died, and that meant that the Black Prince's younger son, Richard II, took the throne, and he was 10 years old. Now, look, i got nothing against 10-year-olds, nothing at all. There is no one better to play Lego with. But let me tell you, I would not want a 10-year-old in charge of a nation at war. Poor Richard II had a very, very tough time of it. This poor kid had an unpopular Regency Council. He had peasant rebellions. The Scots are causing trouble up north. And on top of all of this, the French are absolutely giving him the business as the war continued on the continent. By this stage, the French had recaptured virtually all of the land they had ceded after the Edwardian War. The English now only controlled Calais in the north and Gascony in the south. In 1380, the English sent out another contingent of troops, but once again, this did not go so well at all, and things were looking very grim. But then, it was England's turn to have a slice of good luck, just as Charles V has taken the Caroline War by the short and curlies, as he's turning the screws on the English, he died. And his son, Charles VI, succeeded him to the French throne, and he was just 11 years old. Now, I've got nothing against 11-year-olds either, but again, same deal. Don't want, a, don't want one of them in charge of a warring nation. Charles VI honestly did about as well as his English colleague, as much as you can call two kids colleagues, but, I mean, that's what both nations were led by, two kids of roughly the same age. And Charles VI had all the same problems. Peasant uprisings, unhappy vassals, internal strife, although his regions weren't quite as bad. But what was worse, the plague was back in a a big way. And even after the the triumph of of, of Charles V, it was beginning to just come apart at the seams for France. I mean, in fairness, just as it was for England as well. The war just kind of petered out. Neither nation was really able to wage an effective war on the other. And and, look, while the French and the English obviously, obviously opposed each other wherever possible... There just wasn't a lot of fighting being done at all. And there's a very simple reason for this. The, the, the bottom line to all of the you know, political turmoil and chaos and, and everything else, the, all the stuff that's going on, it, it results in one thing that, that means that the, the wheels kind of fall off the war. Neither nation has any money. Neither realm could afford to wage war. They couldn't pay their soldiers. And on top of that, peasants are sick of the high taxes that are being used to fund this war, and uprisings became increasingly common as the war became increasingly unpopular. So both Charles VI and Richard II decided, therefore, that enough was enough. And so they agreed to a three-year truce in 1389, And this three-year truce lasted a lot longer than three years. It just kept being extended and extended and extended every time it was due to end. Neither side wanted open war. They had enough problems to be getting on with at home. I mean, all these internal issues were making it impossible to fight their their neighbour. So that was effectively the end of the Caroline War. It, It certainly went out with a whimper rather than a bang, but it was undoubtedly a victory for the French. They had pushed back the English, reclaimed a bunch of the territory that had been claimed during the Edwardian War, and uh, had generally have a better, had a much better time of it, you know, irrespective of the fact that both England and France were kind of in shambles by the end of it. I think it's very fair to say on balance that the French certainly ended up being the winners overall when you look at the, the broader picture of the Caroline War. 
But things didn't really improve for either nation during this period of peace as we head towards the third and final stage of the uh, of the Hundred Years' War. In France, Charles VI, his mental state was... Uh, Look, it wasn't particularly stable. Uh, this bloke, he sort of wavered between lucidity and bouts of psychosis. He would forget who he was. He would fail to recognise his friends and family. He would refuse to bathe or wash. He, At one point, he was convinced he was St. George. And most famously, uh, there was a time where Charles believed that he was made of glass and was convinced that he would shatter and break this is today known as glass delusion. There have been some other famous world leaders who have actually suffered from this as well. Look, he did waver between these periods of, of, of severe mental illness and, and, and relative lucidity. But uh, broadly speaking, his condition led to more than a few internal problems within France because France was ruled in effect by French princes who were all squabbling and bickering. They weren't unified. They all sought to further their own individual interests. And as a result, the Kingdom of France suffered. It suffered greatly. But on the other side of the channel, things weren't going that much better for England because England was dealing with Scottish incursions to the north. There was internal fighting between vassals. And then in 1399, Richard II was overthrown, which is never good for the stability of, of a realm. Um, he attempted to disinherit one of his dukes, Henry Bolingbroke. And Henry responded by gathering troops and attacking Richard and pressed his own claim on the English throne as a grandson of Edward III, just as Richard was. And he won. He took Richard prisoner and didn't have too much trouble convincing people to recognise his claim to the throne as Richard just wasn't very popular. So Henry Bolingbroke was crowned as Henry IV but then he too had an extremely difficult time of it governing his newly claimed realm. In the year 1400, a massive uprising began in Wales, led by Owain Glyndor. The Welsh revolt was a very serious threat to English authority over Wales, and it took 15 years for the English to finally crush it. And by the time the Welsh revolt was put down, Henry IV had died, and he had been replaced as king by his son, Henry V, who took the throne in 1413. And with Henry V taking the English throne, the 26-year period of peace that had lasted between France and England since the end of the Caroline War, it finally came to an end because Henry was a very ambitious young man. After he'd crushed the Welsh, after he'd brought about peace between his vassals, and after he'd just generally got England back on track, he decided to reignite the war with the French. Why, you might wonder, and how? Well, both questions actually have the same answer. Henry V went all the way back. He went all the way back to 1360. And he went back to the Treaty of Brittany that had ended the Edwardian War, you remember. And he had decided that, no, I will not accept that Edward renounced his claim to the French throne, a, a claim that would, would have been passed down to me as the current King of England. And he saw an opportunity to press this dynastic claim to the throne, to conquer France and create an empire, given the political instability in France and given his assessment that France just wouldn't be able to put up much of a fight. France was still being governed, if you can call it that, by the factional squabbling of, of, of Charles VI princes. Um, I mean, his, yeah, his mental illness by this stage rendered him completely unfit to rule. Uh, so France is, is weak, it's exposed, and England is doing much better than it had been, and so Henry V decides that the time has come to strike. 
And the third and final stage of the war began in 1415, known as the Lancastrian War, as that's the house that Henry V belonged to, the House of Lancaster. I don't know why they didn't call it the Henriatic War or something, but I mean, that's historians for you. Anyway, Henry invaded France in 1415 with 10,000 men. He captured the city of Harfleur and then marched towards Calais, raiding and pillaging as he went. And once again, the English are they're off to a flyer. The, the French scrambled to respond, gathered an army of their own, and it led to what is perhaps the most famous battle of the Hundred Years' War taking place shortly thereafter. Seventy years prior to this, Edward III had led his troops raiding through the French countryside only to have a huge French army catch up with him and force a battle, the Battle of Cressy, where English longbows had devastated French heavy cavalry. Now, in 1416, Henry V was leading his troops through the French countryside only to have a huge French army catch up with him and force a battle, the Battle of Agincourt, where English longbows once again devastated French heavy cavalry. You can hear a fuller account of the battle in episode 88, the English longbow get across it, but once again, here's a quick rundown. A French force of around 15,000 soldiers blocked the English soldiers, around 8,000 of them, on their route to Calais. And despite the overwhelming numerical advantage, just like the Battle of Cressy, it was a catastrophic loss for the French, worse even than Cressy, for a couple of different reasons, as we'll come to. This battle took place uh, on a a recently ploughed field. Henry positioned his longbowmen once again to cut down the French as they approach. But the French are filled with confidence. They really think this one's in the bag. Uh, They overwhelmingly outnumber the English. And they, as I say, filled to the brim with confidence that this one's going to be an easy win. So much so that the French nobility actually start to jostle and squabble for a position at the front because all of these lords they want the glory and the honor and also the money that comes with taking english nobles prisoner you know as this assured victory for the french came about so they're all squabbling trying to get right at the front and this proved to be a bad move a terrible move because as the heavily armored french marched into the muddy field the english archers opened fire And even if a bodkin arrow fired from a longbow couldn't punch through steel armour, these heavily armoured troops still had vulnerable limbs. Some of them weren't in steel. Some of them were in iron, which definitely couldn't withstand a hit from a longbow. And as the first wave of French troops were hit by volley after volley from the mighty English longbows, some of them fell into the mud and didn't get up again. Even if the arrow didn't kill them, Falling down into thick mud in heavy armour was close to a death sentence as it was. Never mind the fact that you've got legions of French troops, your allies, marching over you in order to get to the English, trampling you further into the mud. As more and more French troops marched forward, the ones who had fallen to begin with were were trampled down and in their heavy armour and with the press of troops behind them, many of them drowned in the mud that filled their helmets. And when those who made it through the mud finally arrived at the English line, they're exhausted. They were barely able to fight. They've just dragged themselves through a muddy field in full plate armour. And so they were killed in their thousands by the English. Those who weren't killed were taken prisoner. But that didn't go much better for them either because the English took so many prisoners at the Battle of Agincourt that they had more French prisoners than they did English troops. 
Henry V, therefore, realizing that it was just a matter of time before the French realized that they still had numerical superiority, even after they'd been taken prisoner, before they escaped from uh, where they were being held captive, returned to the battlefield, rearmed themselves and renewed the fight with the English, Henry gave the order to execute each and every one of these prisoners. The Battle of Agincourt was a total and complete disaster for the French. And and not just because of how many they lost, it was also who they lost. Remember, it was the nobles who had been squabbling for a place at the front of the French contingents. It had been them who had been so eager to get to the fight with the English and and claim all the glory and fame that was going to come with this battle. And it was them who ultimately were the ones who died in their thousands, trampled into the mud, drowning in their helmets as the Battle of Agincourt was lost. Entire noble houses were snuffed out. Around 40% of the French nobility died at Agincourt. 40% of the entire noble ruling class in the entire kingdom of France. This dealt a huge blow to the structure and stability of the entire realm. And Henry capitalized on this stunning victory. He seized Normandy, he allied himself with Burgundy, and then finally, in 1420, he forced the French to sign a treaty that married him to Charles VI's daughter and promised the French crown to his heirs. So while he didn't take the French crown for himself, Henry had successfully pressed his claim on the French throne and he had ensured that his heir would end up as the king of both England and France. And this could and perhaps should have ended the war, which would have then had the much less snappy title of the 83-year war. However, Charles VI's son, who also was, of course, called Charles, the the former heir to the French throne, or the Dauphin, as he's known, uh, he didn't give in so easily. You won't be surprised to learn that he wasn't too happy with this upstart young English king marrying his sister and stealing his birthright from him by promising the French crown to his nephew or rather than himself. And so... Henry was forced to keep fighting because as much as Charles VI had given up, his son, the Dauphin, had not. And this fight between the Dauphin and Henry was very short-lived because Henry V died in 1422, leaving behind a nine-month-old son, also, of course, called Henry, who was to inherit both of the English and French thrones as arranged by this treaty. But then, when Charles VI died a few months later... Henry VI, he's this, this small infant, was proclaimed as the king of both England and France, as you can imagine. But no, the Dauphin, Charles, he's still alive and kicking. He is still fighting for his position as king of France, his claim as the heir of his father, Charles VI. And I'll tell you this, much of France is still loyal to him as the Dauphin, rather than a literal baby who had been crowned their king after a treaty that they'd been forced to sign. But France is in tatters. It is unable to meaningfully resist the English as they continue to fight the embattled French, and they are in such a terrible position that it seems like even though the Dauphin has a claim to the French throne that he is more than willing to attempt to press, and even though England has a literal infant on the throne, it doesn't really seem like there's a way that Charles will be able to successfully press his claim on the French throne and reclaim it. But what happened next? Well, 
long-time listeners will remember from episode 114, Get Across It, one day, an illiterate peasant girl, just 17 years old, turned up at Charles' court in Chinon, claiming to have been sent by her god to lead France to victory against the English. And we don't know how, but this peasant girl somehow managed to convince the Dauphin Charles to let her lead his armies, and she is of course remembered to history as Joan of Arc. Now, I'm not going to go into detail as to exactly what she got up to. Again, you can listen to it in episode 114. You can hear all about it there. But here's the short version. Joan of Arc rallied the French, broke the English seat at Orléans, attacked and defeated the English up and down the Loire Valley. She seized key strategic positions and almost single-handedly reversed the course of the war somehow. Charles was officially crowned king as Charles VII, And France was filled with a renewed hope that they could, after all, defeat the English. Unfortunately for the French, and also for her as well, Joan of Arc was taken prisoner by the English in 1430. She was burnt at the stake for heresy the next year. But her martyrdom wasn't in vain, because Charles VII kept up the attack on the English, made the most of the internal division and strife in England over their plan for the war, and enjoyed further the defection of Burgundy to his side in 1435. He managed to secure a string of truces that allowed him to improve and increase the size of his army. These truces were much more beneficial for France than they were for the English. And most notably of all, in restructuring and uh, and bolstering his armed forces, Charles VII included and incorporated the bleeding edge of military technology at the time devastatingly powerful gunpowder artillery. In 1445, Charles oversaw the creation of the first professional standing army that Western Europe had seen since the time of the Romans, and they were backed up with cannons. And so now it was the French who were on the attack, pushing deeper and deeper into English-held territory in Normandy and then Gascony, the former English stronghold, and the English castles were no match for the wonder of the age, these mighty French cannons, and the castles fell in front of this artillery in days, rather than the months that it used to take to capture a castle. And as we talked about last week, the the medieval era, it's coming to an end. A new age of history is beginning, one where plate armour and and thick castle walls would be obsoleted by gunpowder. Episode 115, get across it. Throughout the 1440s, the English attempted to cool the conflict with France, very clearly reading the way that the wind was going. Henry VI married Charles VII's niece and made it clear that he didn't want to keep fighting, but that wasn't going to stop Charles. He retook Normandy from the English once and for all and then moved on to Gascony, which the French captured in 1451. The English attempted to rally, uh, but after briefly driving out the French in 1452, they suffered a decisive defeat at the hands of the French at the 1453 Battle of Castellon. The Battle of Castellon saw the English overextend while attacking the French army's encampment and then refuse to retreat when defeat obviously loomed. Both sides were relatively evenly matched going into the battle. They both had a little under 10,000 men each, but the English lost at least half their forces and probably more, while the French lost around 100 men. 
It was essentially the Battle of Cressy in reverse. French cannons cut down the advancing English, just as the English longbows had cut down the French a century previous. Those English that survived were routed and fled not just from the battle, but ultimately from Gascony itself, which was seized once and for all by the French off the English, and it remains part of France to this very day. And even though neither the French nor the English knew it at the time, the Battle of Castillon was, for all intents and purposes, the end of the Hundred Years' War. Technically speaking, the two nations actually remained at war on paper for over two decades more, so it's not even really the 116-year war, it's actually the 138-year war. But with a loss of almost all their continental possessions, England only managed to hold on to Calais, internal strife took the English out of the fight, and the Wars of the Roses began in 1455 and brought about a de facto end to the Hundred Years' War, even if, again, the war wouldn't be officially concluded until the 1470s. In 1475, the Hundred Years' War came to its technical end when Edward IV thought about pressing his claim to the French throne. But Louis XI, son of Charles VII, wisely bought him off. He paid him to abandon his claim, not that that stopped the English and British monarchs claiming the throne of France all the way through to 1801, as I say. And and the reason they stopped, by the way, I didn't mention this before, but the reason they stopped claiming the French throne is that it was abolished in the wake of the French Revolution. So that wrapped that one up. But look, whether it was 1453 or, or 1475, one thing was certain. The French had won the Hundred Years' War. They had driven out the English. They had reclaimed France almost entirely and settled a period of political instability first brought about in 1066 when William the Conqueror invaded England and ruled over both England and Normandy. The consequences of the Hundred Years' War are far too numerous to mention. It led to the unification and centralisation of France as a nation. It led to the Wars of the Roses in England that would shape that nation's history. It changed the way taxes were collected. It changed the way armies were managed. It saw the rejection of French language in England. Prior to this, English kings spoke French, which is why English as a language is so heavily influenced by French. But after this war, no one in England wanted anything to do with France. England and France had been politically intertwined since 1066, but now existed almost completely separately, overlooking Calais, a situation that has remained ever since. And it also saw a complete change in the way that war was fought, from the way that French heavy cavalry was devastated by the English longbow right through the way that gunpowder artillery obsoleted the castle as the final word in military defence. And these things in turn were instrumental in the ultimate collapse of the feudal system in Western Europe and the emergence of nationalism leading to the age of discovery and European colonisation around the world. So the Hundred Years' War was a monumental conflict with a monumental legacy and an entirely accurate name. But then, I guess, the 116 years war just doesn't have the same ring to it. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is a story of the 100 years war. Certainly a long one, a lot to get across, but I think we did an okay job of getting through all the twists and turns of this conflict. I hope you enjoyed the show. 
course, back next week with more nonsense for you to enjoy. Until then, uh, all the boring, normal housekeeping stuff coming your way, halfhousehistory.net, a contact form that you can find there um, if you want to get in touch with the show, suggest a topic or if you've got some feedback, what have you. Um, uh, additionally, of course, uh, you can find Half Us History merch. There's new merch that is uh, the, the shop has only been very recently updated. If you want to go and grab yourself some stuff off that, you can do it now. Um, there is a sale on as I'm recording this. I'm not sure if it still is, but hey, if you want a discount code uh, that you can use at any time, head to the Patreon, patreon.com slash Half History. You get access to discount codes to the merch shop, uh, behind the scenes stuff, uh, show notes, uncut episodes, all sorts of things going on there in, in addition to exclusive Patreon-only merch that gets shipped out to the higher tiers at no additional expense to you. Uh, so do get across that. But it, hey, look, if you're not interested in paying for this content, that's fine. But if you could do me a favor, leave a review, tell your friends about it, tell your enemies about it, tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent. Got to spread the word. Got to get those numbers up. Uh, appreciate everyone who's out there proselytizing the good word of half our history. Anyway, going to wrap things up here, as usual, with a question posed on Reddit. See you back here next week for more half our history. But until then, leaving you the question posed by Hyperactive Snail 3 who says, during the Hundred Years' War, how did the soldiers manage to fight for so long if the average peasant's life expectancy back then was only 40? Now, the reason I picked this one is there are actually quite a number of issues with it because the the, the low life expectancy that we see in the medieval era actually is not a reflection of down by enormous infant mortality rates because basically if you were able to survive childhood you had a very good chance to go on to live you know 60 70 years certainly not as long as maybe we do today with our improved nutrition and healthcare services but certainly in the medieval era it wasn't as though you just died and keel over at the age of